Hello, and welcome back to another edition of YCT Matters. This is Carol Platt-Lebow, the president of Yankee Institute. And today we are delighted to welcome to the program Dr. Robert Grayboys. Dr. Grayboys is the author of Yankee Institute's most recent policy study, Reforming Connecticut Healthcare After COVID. Among many other things, Dr. Grayboys was a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center from 2013 to 2022. He is the author of Fortress and Frontier in American Healthcare and was a healthcare advisor for the National Federation of Independent Business, an economics professor at the University of Richmond, regional economist and director of education at the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond, and sub-Saharan Africa economist for Chase Manhattan Bank. He's taught health economics and graduate programs at Virginia Commonwealth University, the University of Virginia, George Mason University, and George Washington University. If that weren't enough, his degrees include a PhD in economics from Columbia, his master's from Columbia, a Virginia Commonwealth University and the College of William and Mary, and a bachelor's from UVA. He's chaired the National Economist Club, Richmond Association for Business Economics, and the National Association for Business Economics Healthcare Roundtable. We are so delighted to welcome you, Dr. Grayboys, and we thank you for your scholarship on Yankee Institute's behalf. Well, thanks so much. And we could probably call me Bob from here on in in this <laughs> podcast, but uh, it's, it's been a real pleasure. It was great working with your staff. So I've had a ball with it. Well, thank you. You know, one of the things that we thought was very interesting as we worked through was the way you decided to structure the study, because you really started off in looking at how Connecticut's healthcare compared to other states. And you went through and sort of looked at it on a variety of, of matrices and compared them on several different things uh, including licensure and medical education and things like that. You looked at specific policies, and what were your thoughts as you analyzed um, Connecticut's healthcare system? Right. Well, the data that I presented there really showed the status of Connecticut just prior to the beginning of COVID. Uh, no telling how things stack up now because everything has been so much in flux. I think it would be very difficult to actually accumulate the data to to do the contemporary comparison. Just prior to the COVID pandemic in early 2020, we did the, at Mercatus, we did the third round of something that uh, I originated called the Healthcare Openness and Access Project. This was right. three of us worked together. Uh, Dr. Darcy Nicole Bryan, who um, uh, who is a medical doctor, and Jared Rhodes, who's a policy scholar uh, up at Dartmouth. So the, the three of us put this thing together, and we looked at 40-some different variables for each state. How Basically, the question we were trying to ask was, how much leeway do doctors and patients and other healthcare providers have to craft the best possible treatment for an individual patient in each state. And what we found in uh, in our 2020 study, which was the third, we had also done it in 2016, 2018, was that Connecticut was pretty consistently toward the bottom in terms of openness and access. Right. Uh, which meant that there are a lot of restrictions, a lot of restrictions on how, on what, 
nurse practitioners could do, uh, who could practice medicine in the state of Connecticut, you know, all sorts of things. Like you, did you have to go to the state and beg permission to add beds to your hospital? Uh, how was your insurance system structured? So anyway, Connecticut, for all of its charms and wonders, and uh, I have spent a, a, a quite a bit of time in your state and love it there. But uh, but the fact is, you traditionally placed an awful lot of restrictions on healthcare providers and patients compared with other states. Um, right. So. That said, what I got what I got from that and put into the study was, well, starting in 2020, and I recognize that things have changed in Connecticut and things have changed in the rest of the country. But if you were starting to say, how can we open up the health economy in Connecticut? How can we make it more accessible to patients and, and more flexible for doctors? Where would you start? And I picked out seven different areas where you could think about doing it. And I don't want to mm-hmm. say that I'm running headlong into the legislature and saying you need to pass these things. I would say you need to consider these things. Yes. And and the first one that you talk about is expanding physician licensure. Sure. And um and you know one of the things that that Yankee Institute did uh urge, and we were grateful that the governor did go ahead and expand, was um, cross-border telehealth, um, Mm -hmm. allowing these sorts of things to be opened up, because it does make things so much easier. And it's simply common sense. It just knocks down these meaningless um, sort of barriers that do nothing but drive up costs and drive up inconvenience. And that was something I noticed that was your first recommendation out of the box. Could you comment a little on that? Sure. So one point that I made, the overwhelming point of this thing is that COVID forced the entire United States into a big grand experiment and opening things really quickly. Because when that virus hit our shores, they didn't really have the luxury of saying, well, we're not going to let this doctor practice because he lives five miles over the border or... Uh, or we can't let this nurse practitioner come in because she's over there. Uh, and uh, and so one of the things that happened immediately, almost immediately at the, at the federal level and reinforced by things at the state level was, as you said, first of all, they said, you know what? If you're a doctor in any of the other states and you've got a computer and can talk to someone in Connecticut and help them out through this pandemic, you're welcome to do so. And so all of a sudden the borders disappeared for telehealth, but also the borders disappeared for sort of the physical provision of health too. I remember there was New York city was in dire straits at some point early in the pandemic. And I think they flew a plane load of physicians in from Colorado who said, we're going to go to New York and help out our colleagues there. And in many ways, this was unheard of prior to this. Physician licensure, at least since the early 20th century, had been very much a state-by-state item. Mm -hmm. And in part because the state said, well, we want to monitor this to make sure that the doctors practicing here are following the practices that we think are de minimis, that uh, proper behavior for a physician, but also, quite frankly, a good bit of those barriers came because 
As the economist Milton Friedman famously said, the American Medical Association was the single most successful labor union of the 20th century. Right. And, and the states said, well, actually, we'd like to keep the other doctors out because they'll come in here and compete with us. So there was this duality of why you're keeping other doctors out. I happen to think that we're at a point now where even, even if you have that self-interest, it's sort of pointless to do it. With the baby boomers, like me, getting into their later years, there's going to be so much demand for physician labor that you could let doctors in from all over the country into Connecticut. And the ones in Connecticut are not going to go hungry or lacking for income. So first of all, there is a compact nationwide. That Connecticut is sort of partly in and partly out. The idea of the compact is... If you're a member of this group of states that signed this agreement, a doctor from one member state can come into your state and vice versa. And again, Connecticut, I, I can't give you all of the specifics on it, but Connecticut's sort of halfway in it. The most open of all the states on this, and one of the most interesting states to watch, uh, and, and, and I will stress this has been a very bipartisan thing, is Arizona. Arizona took an unprecedented step, not just with medicine, but with almost every licensed profession, I believe with the exception of law. Uh, the idea was if you, if you are a doctor anywhere in the United States and you decide to relocate to Arizona, the day you arrive, you can go tell the state, I'm a doctor, I'm here, I want to start practicing. You hang your shingle out and you can practice. Now, eventually, under the law there, you're going to have to go get an Arizona license. But they're not going to say, okay, you've moved here. Now spend the next year or two trying to get a license before you can actually start getting income. Uh, if it were up to me, I wanted to express an opinion. I wish every state would do uh, what Arizona had done. And they recognized we're in a situation where we need to provide health care to people. And, you know, on in some occasions, Connecticut will find itself with an excess of doctors. Other times you're going to find a shortage. If you've got an epidemic going on there or a bad flu season or something, it would be very nice if other doctors, you know, say from the surrounding states or elsewhere could pop in and lend a hand during the point at the moments of high stress. Uh, effectively, most states you can't do that, and, and, and so that's that's just one idea. Yes, and it's really common sense. I mean, it's just eradicating barriers to entry when you need them most. And uh, I, I think something similar obtains, as you had pointed out, with nursing licenses. Correct? Yes, absolutely. Uh, very, very similar. And again, during the pandemic, the barriers pretty much dropped. The virus overcame the bureaucracy for at least that <laughs> one shining moment. And nurses could move back and forth across the borders. And there's also a nursing compact. Uh, I'd have to look back the report. I don't remember whether Connecticut's in that, uh, but I've got it in the report. But yes, that's uh, that's a second idea. Um, yes, Connecticut is not apparently in the nursing licensure compact, right, um, but it, it is one of those common sense ideas that, that would, you know, be something that would allow a lot more uh, freedom and flexibility, especially as you point out in times of high need like COVID. Is there anything it can't do? Yeah, let me do an an, an, an analogy here. 
So we just had some bad storms go through here, and we had hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people out of electricity after the storm got through blowing the trees down on the wires. And we found there were, there were crews in the neighborhood putting the wires back up and getting Northern Virginia back up and running. And these crews came from Pennsylvania. They came from Alabama, whatever. Virginia was in a big need for power company uh, linemen. And they all came into the state. And then they went to another state that was devastated. And they moved around. Now, you have analogous situations in medicine. Uh, and I'm very, very glad that we don't have some sort of a protectionist regime that says, well, no, we're not going to let a Pennsylvania lineman come in here and fix our electricity. Uh, you know, you'll have to apply <laughs> for a license. And two years from now, when you get that license, you can work on the lines in my neighborhood. Right. It would take even longer to get your darn electricity back. Yes, so. I'm going to skip around in some of these recommendations, number one, because I want everyone who hasn't seen it yet to stay on the edge of their seat to read the report. But number two, because I'm I'm very interested uh, in your recommendation about dropping certificate of need laws. Before I came to Yankee Institute, I really was not aware there was such a thing of certific as certificate of need laws. And I find it so profoundly offensive that any hospital or anyone would have to go to the government to go to the government to get permission to buy an x-ray machine or add beds to your hospital or to do whatever someone in his or her medical judgment deemed to be necessary to care for the people of your state. Um, but there it is. And as you point out, uh, certificate of need applications can be expensive. They take a long time. And they can also be politicized. So you have recommended um, that we get rid of them, right? Yeah. I mean, certificate of need laws popped up in well, it was late 1960s, early 1970s. There were a whole bunch of rationales behind it. They said, well, what we'll do is we will restrict the number of beds in an area. So we don't want too much competition because if a new hospital comes in and builds a bunch of beds, it'll kind of drive the costs down, the price of a hospital bed down through competition. And that'll oh, cost geez. some jobs at the old hospital. And so what we'll do is we'll give you protection from that as long as you set up some charity care uh, as a reward for doing this. Well, it turns out, and, and a couple of uh, a couple of my former colleagues at Mercatus became the national experts on this. They did exhaustive, exhaustive statistical studies and showed you don't get more charity care out of the certificate of need states. You don't get any of the other purported benefits that CONs were set up for. Originally, every state had it. Fairly soon, maybe in the 1980s, states one by one started dropping them. Some states eliminated them entirely, some states partially. But I can give one specific example that happened here in Virginia that tell you how these things work. So basically, you want to set up, you want to buy yourself a new neonatal intensive care unit. You've got to go to the state. Uh, which will then say, do you do we really need it, or do you have enough of those things right where you are? 
Now, of course, your competitor may be a very well-heeled old-time hospital <laughs> who's got friends on the state board that says, well, my friend, your competitor says we don't need any more of these, so we're not going to grant you the license. And even in the best of circumstances, you can spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not more, and years in app applying. So what happened in southwest Virginia, in the Roanoke-Salem area, an ambulance arrived at one of the hospitals in, in the, with an infant who was in pretty desperate straits. They said, we need to get this child into your, your neonatal unit as quickly as possible. And the hospital had to say, we don't have a neonatal unit because the state said we didn't need one. You're going to have to ride that baby over, I forget how far it was, 10 miles to another hospital and the baby died en route that is that is beyond it is. isn't it the geniuses at the state telling professional healthcare people what they needed and didn't need i i love it when a bunch of politicians try and run um the yeah. free market and telling you what you can spend your money they weren't asking the state to pay for anything they were saying, do you mind no. if I spend money now to pay for some equipment that might save an infant in dire straits? But there it is. And so, yeah, that's a pretty clear recommendation, uh, I would say. Uh, I would say it is. And then um, and then let's just talk about one more, because, again, I don't want to uh, since we believe in incentives, uh, we don't want to uh, sap everyone's incentive to read the whole paper and all the Spoiler. recommendations. But finally. <laughs> um, one of the other uh, recommendations is authorizing association health plans. Yes. So the idea here is that a lot of the health insurance, private health insurance market is handled through employers. So I, I've worked for employers that had 2,000 employees. Uh, the federal, when I worked at the Federal Reserve, there were 2,000 employees there. And we had a plan, I think it was a Blue Cross plan, that was that's at least that's what my card said. Well, what it really meant was the Fed was had formed its own insurance company and was paying Blue Cross to run it. Uh, and this is the way that that corporate plans are generally done. It's the way labor union plans. Well, the problem is if you're small businesses, you can't really do that. You don't have enough people. So at the Federal Reserve with 2,000 people, you knew that X percent of them were going to come down with cancer and need millions of dollars of chemotherapy and what have you, and some of them would need open-heart surgery. But on balance, with, when you have that many people, you can sort of predict how many of those cases you're going to have, and you can manage the flow accordingly. If you're a small business, sure. you can't do that. You've got 20 employees, and one of them comes down with some terrible cancer, well, that's suddenly going to increase your healthcare bill by right. by huge amounts uh, to the right. point that you can destroy the firm. So there have been proposals for years, for decades, really, to to allow what is what are known as association health plans. So this would be. <clears throat> say, all of the small businesses in a particular industry, which belong to some professional association, 
could band together and instead of having a separate little insurance fund for each company, you'd have it for the whole group of companies. Now, this is this is often touted as the next big idea, and, and I know that you've got some very good people on both sides of the aisle in Connecticut who are favoring this, and I don't disfavor it. I think what I wrote in here and what, what, what I would say is it's a perfectly fine idea. It's certainly worth investigating, as long as you keep in mind a couple of caveats. One caveat is it has to be set up right Otherwise, you can create incentives to, you know, what are known as selection biases. So you form a, we're going to have an association that's composed of companies that all have young, healthy employees, and we are not going to let in the companies that have older, sick employees. And if you do this, mm-hmm. you, can, you can introduce some serious instabilities into the insurance markets. So technically speaking, it's best to talk to an actuary on these questions. Now, there are ways you can set them up that minimizes the risk that you're going to have those sorts of selection biases in establishing your insurance pools. And the second caveat, uh, when I worked at NFIB, these came up a lot. This discussion, discussions of AHPs came up an awful lot. And I had to say with great frequency, the problem is when states have set them up, have, have en- enabled them, insurance companies have not stepped up and said, sure, we'd be glad to run one of these. So there, there has been traditionally a hesitation on the part of third-party administrators, insurance companies which do this kind of contract work, say, well, you know, it's, it's kind of a pain to run those. We don't really want to do it. And so the caveat there is, to think about what it's going to take to draw those insurers to your state to actually run these things, uh, minimize the inconvenience, minimize the costs of it, uh, and just to simply be aware that it may not be the panacea that you hope for. But that again, that doesn't mean it's not worth exploring, not worth passing. It just means take some care in doing it. Yes. And in fact, I believe our legislature was going to, because as you point out, there was bipartisan yes. support for this. They were going to come together in a special session to get it done. And what uh, blew the whole deal apart is the government unions tried to horn in and say they wouldn't object to this, although it had really nothing to do with them and there was nothing relevant to them to object to or not to object to. They wouldn't object to this and cause a problem so long as they were given the the gift. Uh, no, it wasn't government. It was unions generally. As long as they were given the gift of um, of getting more um, more paid sick leave. Okay. And so it was. Yeah. Right. And so that managed to just go ahead and torpedo the whole idea, uh, which was really unfortunate and sort of um, sort of. Uh, another sign of uh, of you know how good you know good ideas or at least forward motion can be torpedoed by special interests just getting in the middle and trying to get something for nothing you know it was really an amazing phenomenon but as you say I think if carefully done there is promise sure. in the idea um, as there is promise in so many of the other ideas that that you present in this most recent study. And uh, and it's important that we look at all of them, because, as you point out, if there was a silver lining in the pandemic, 
It was that it forced government to do what it seems to do under nothing else than an emergency situation, which is to be open to innovation and to think creatively. And so we are very grateful um, for your your work with us in reforming Connecticut healthcare after COVID, which incidentally can be found on the Yankee Institute website. Well, again, it's been it's been fun working with your crew. Uh, the nice thing with having a state that has a long way to go is, well, there's plenty of things you can do. <laughs> there is. Uh, there is always good scope for reform. And uh, we are very grateful to you, Dr. Robert Grayboys, of, uh, uh, for helping us think of, of creative and constructive ways that can be done. And um, if our listeners want to know more about you and to follow more of your work, where may they do that? Well, I think the best place at this point is, for those listeners who are familiar with Substack, I have a journal and I publish, uh, it's called Bastiat's Window, B-A-S-T-I-A-T apostrophe S, Window. And you can find it at, and here's the trouble, you got to spell my name right, G-R-A-B-O-Y-E-S dot substack dot com. You can find my biography there. You can find my articles on economics, on healthcare, but also my articles on movies, the music I compose, you name it, it's there. I think it's kind of interesting reading, uh, but that's the best place to look and you can um, see pictures of me and read about my background. Uh, I will say I have had a fun career and a fun life, and I try to bring that to the fore in everything I write there. And I will say you are something of a Renaissance man. So Bastiat's window is definitely something worth checking out, including the compositions, which Dr. Grayboys began when he was at the tender age of eight, just like Mozart. Point out you can subscribe to subscribe to it for free. You can pay too, but free is perfectly great. And so we are very grateful to you for taking the time f- to speak with us about the study uh, that we have done together. And uh, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Grayboys. Thanks a lot, Carol. All right. And thank you so much for joining us. And we count on you to be with us for another edition of YCT Matters. This is Carol Platt-Lebow. We look forward to having you with us the next time. I'll show you.